detective? Thrill me. Scream! Scream for your lives! You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study, not to bring back. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Oh, I know this creature of yours. When the dragon gets this old, it knows nothing but pain. Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted. Welcome to Hal's Care Board, gentlemen. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. So, celestial event. That works. You really shook the pillars of heaven, didn't you? What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Phantom Galaxy, the crossroads where horror, fantasy, and science fiction meet. And I am joined again by Bill Van Vagel from Canada. Bill, how are you doing today? I'm a rocking and a rolling and ready to discuss all our space, horror, and fantasy needs. Yes, yes. So we have a fun show. Uh, as you've probably started to notice with the, with the podcast, we have a lot of episodes that are themed episodes. We've had an episode... Uh, dedicated to Ennio Morricone, and I did with Dave Roy. We had the Ray Harryhausen episode, and Bill, and then, of course, Dave Becker from DVD Infatuation and uh, Horror Movie Podcast, and Land of the Creeps. He joined us for that one. And in between, we're going to keep doing these episodes, uh, which actually I'm really starting to have a lot of fun with them, where we do the VOD roulette, where we're going to pick two movies. We always announce them at the end of each episode. And then Bill and I, we've started to fall into a routine. Now this will be the third time we've done it, Bill, where we pick a third movie that's a little bit, uh, usually it's a little bit newer. We So far, it's been kind of science fiction, but we try to find something that we really are interested in. Sometimes I think with the VOD roulettes, we're willing to throw things out there and see what sticks on the wall. But with this, uh, I think we're falling into a routine that I really, I really like. And so we're going to, starting with this one particularly, I'm going to make sure that we have this up on the schedule at, uh, on the Facebook page for Phantom Galaxy. And I'll probably post in Twitter so that we have the titles up that you can see what's coming up. So you can watch uh, as the audience and, and join along and, and comment and send us uh, thoughts and notes uh, when we, when we actually have the episodes. So all that stuff's going to go up and we'll begin in just a moment. But before we do, I wanted to mention that we have an episode that will be coming up very shortly. Uh, Bill's going to come back for it. That's going to be wilderness horror movies. So uh, we're going to put something on the Facebook. Want to get your ideas and your thoughts on what your favorite wilderness camping horror. Would that be a good way to describe it, Bill? I thought that I would, I would call it kind of like horror in the woods, that kind of theme. Yeah, horror in the woods, the wilderness, the wild. I think the movies that we came up with, we're also going to have a, a, a friend of ours, Greg Bench, will be on here talking these movies. And I think we have a pretty interesting grouping. We could, This could be a topic that goes on for episodes, but we, we each of us picked two movies. So there'll be a total of six movies we discuss. And uh, I think it's going to be really fun. But I want to hear uh, from all of you what wilderness horror films uh, you enjoy. So I was going to say there's everything from high end to not so high end. Yeah, we, we have a little bit of slashers. We have some uh, nature run amok. And then we have things that probably fall somewhere, maybe maybe a little bit on, on both sides of that fence. So I think I think there's some good stuff there, though. And I had a fun time watching all the movies um, 
to some extent. So let's go ahead and start. I I guess I'll start first with the movie, Bill, that you chose for me. And just a quick, well, we'll try to do a quick recap. Last time we had two movies I had chosen for Bill, The Viking Women and The Sea Serpent, which has a much longer title, but you can go back to the episode uh, to see that. And that was a Roger Corman-directed movie. We both of us didn't care much for it outside of that title and a cool poster, which I think we'll be saying a lot on the show from time to time. There wasn't a whole lot. It wasn't really it wasn't very interesting. Sea Monster looked like a bath toy. Then we also reviewed uh, the the Earth Die Screaming, which was Bill's choice for me. We like that one a lot better. That was Terrence Fisher directed. You may remember Fisher from a lot of Hammer horror films. And this one is not a Hammer film, but it's a really fun 60s era, early 60s era science fiction movie. And you can see the inspiration on a lot of things like Night of the Living Dead, Doctor Who. I really I had a really good time with it. It's available on, I know it's like on Tubi, right? And also on Amazon Prime, I believe. No, I know it's Tubi for sure. I haven't seen yeah. it on Prime, but it may very well be on there. But that was the that would be the big recommendation there. And our big review last time was The Man from Earth, which we both really enjoyed. And that's definitely worth checking out. So uh, to continue the Corman theme, which we've been able to kind of kind of hang around uh, all of our episodes so far, Corman produced the movie that you chose for me last time, Bill. Although I believe you chose it more based on the act one of the actors in the film than the fact that this was Corman. But purely by accident, I had no grandmaster <laughs> plan on this one. I don't think we have much of a. It's starting to show in some of these choices that we don't quite have a grandmaster plan. But um, with the first movie, it's called The Terror Within from 1989. It is Corman produced, not Corman directed. And it's funny because you rec- you had chosen the movie for me. And at the time, the minute that I saw the poster, which I remember seeing in the video store all the time in the eighties and you know, they'd have it hanging up on the wall and whatnot. It's a pretty cool poster. It's a kind of monster reaching out of the darkness and his claws are sort of extending. looks like he's tearing, shredding his way through the video case or through the, the movie poster, but not a, not a bad poster, which again, we say a lot, but I couldn't, and I knew I'd seen the movie. I could envision that. Okay. Andrew Stevens is in the movie. George Kennedy's also in the movie. There's not a lot of other actors actually in the movie. It's a small handful of people, but I couldn't really remember. And I remembered the monster, but I couldn't remember many other details about it. So I was pretty certain I had seen it as well as its sequel, which came out in 1991. But sitting down to watch it, instantly started to recall it and remember it. And watching it, I could kind of understand and, and recall why I wasn't. Uh, it wasn't very vivid in my memory. So this movie takes place in an almost a nondescript sort of post-apocalyptic world that looks a lot like, I don't know, uh, Utah maybe, you know, it's kind of craggy, maybe Arizona. It, it There's nothing that looks particularly uh, post-apocalyptic about it, other than the fact that it's a desert and you have a couple of guys who are traveling across this desert and we become, becomes clear that they are communicating with people who are in an underground bunker, an underground base, also nondescript. Looks like it could be my parents' basement if you pushed a bunch, a bunch of old style computers in the corner in the corners of it and down here seems like this is maybe the remnant of humanity that something really bad has happened that has scorched the earth destroyed humanity and also made humanity seems to be for the most part sterile there are creatures on the surface which they refer to as gargoyles 
and we don't get too many glimpses of them early on. But once eventually we do see the monster, and we see it quite a bit. It's not the the worst creature I've ever seen. It's not the best man in a suit. In fact, I actually prefer the legitimate gargoyles from the 1976 movie. I think it's 76 movie that Stan Winston created the TV movie of Cornell Wild, just called Gargoyles. Another case where you have creatures kind of uh, chasing after human women, which is implied in this film that that's kind of what's happened because we find a survivor on the surface and that survivor is brought into the underground bunker and then essentially the movie aliens happens <laughs> it's so that's that's the plot really that's what happens the uh, the creature in a sort of trojan horse move i guess <laughs> finds its way into the base and then it's picking people off one by one andrew stevens of course kind of rises to the fore as a i don't know like a bargain basement Patrick Swayze, although I think you pointed out, Bill, that Don Swayze is really the is kind of the bargain basement Patrick Swayze. But he kind of reminded me of Swayze when he was also in that kind of silly sci-fi movie, Steel Dawn. Like, although I watching Terror Within, I kind of felt like I'd rather be watching Steel Dawn. This movie is, it's not as badly made as some of the ones we've re- recently reviewed. It's certainly not as badly made as some of those fifties and sixties uh, films that we were talking about in terms of like the she monster uh, the and the, um, the, the, the Viking women. It's not as bad as that, but in some ways it's less entertaining to watch because it has a middle of the road, generic ripoff quality. In fact, the ripoff, uh, the, the ripoff quotient on this movie is so high that you wonder why they decided to make it at all, even just as a cash grab, because I've seen Roger Corman cash grabs in the past. And he did a, he had a series of movies in the seventies and eighties uh, that, that were ripoffs of star Wars and aliens, you know, battle beyond the stars. And you've got some of these different movies, uh, star crash and, and movies of that ilk for the, the, um, the not forbidden planet was it like forbidden world you know movies like that that are also alien ripoffs but they have a little bit of energy to them they were doing something interesting to me every choice in this movie has absolutely not only has have you seen it before they're not just ripping off a movie they're ripping off iconic movies that have had about a decade or so to percolate i mentioned aliens or alien Alien has already had a sequel by 1989. They're already scripting and working on Alien 3 at this point. A whole decade has gone by between the first one. About five or six years has passed since Corman himself has ripped off Alien. So it's so odd that all the choices in this movie are either exactly what you saw in the other movie, they're exactly what you saw in the other movie, or they're worse. And what I mean by worse is look at the, the way that the human beings are infected in Alien, right? You have the spider attaching to the face and that's there's something interesting and kind of mysterious about that because you have an impregnation but it's not limited to a gender right so men and women are at risk it's an interesting wrinkle it, it creates that fear of the sort of violation but it applies across the genders what does what does this movie do it goes back to the kind of monsters going to rape a woman kind of thing you know it just goes back to that kind of icky thing and I don't know. Was there? There was nothing in this movie that generated any interest, and they and the characters don't generate interest, but they get rid of them very quickly. And we know that's going to happen. It's a monster in a dark place, and people are going to get picked off one by one. But everyone was gone, and suddenly I was like, "Wait, there's a good." I feel like there's a good bit of this movie left, and I'm I have to hang out with these people now. <laughs> 
Well, what I found interesting is you didn't get the backstory of the people, which, quite frankly, I didn't want. But maybe if you knew something about them, you would care a little more or they would be a little quirkier. Like they didn't build any quirks into them. They didn't make them interesting at all. You could have cared less if one of them died or if one of them survived. Like you had no rooting interest in any of these characters, or at least I didn't. I don't know about you. Yeah, and, and it is a there's a dual thing going on here because you're absolutely right. These characters are not written well at all. Now we've seen that in in, in horror and science fiction movies before, where a character is bare bones, there's not much going on, it's very nondescript, and then sometimes we can come in and say, well, that person gave a performance. Maybe it's so over the top and so hammy that it gives interest, or they take it and do something really kind of novel and interesting with it. We've definitely seen that before. I mean. Guys like Vincent Price and stuff, they made in Lance Henriksen have made whole careers out of doing that sort of thing. George Kennedy, who's in this movie, has done that sort of thing before. But he doesn't do that here. George Kennedy could be doing a like stovetop stuffing commercial for as much energy and care and interest as he's bringing to this role. Yeah, I actually had in my notes, George Kennedy looks tired, comma, uninspired. He looks like uh, he was in, uh, oh, the one with Leslie Nielsen, with half the energy. He was not even at Naked Gun level, which was at about the same time, and he gave a way better performance for that. It was embarrassingly bad. And this is kind of a base. I think it was Gene Siskel who once said, look at your movie, and if if footage of the actors in your movie having lunch together would be more interesting than your movie, don't make it. And I think you could make the case that George Kennedy probably is – he probably generated more energy on his way to the craft services table to get a sandwich <laughs> than he did trying to talk about this mutant monster that is, you know, this is, they're the last stand of humanity possibly. And they've got to do what they can to, to keep the human race running and they could care less about it. And we care less about it. He, he would be the perfect example of a red, a red bull commercial before and after, yeah, you know, yes. Like it look, he always looks like he's hung over. His hair isn't combed. He really doesn't give two hoots about this ship or whatever. He's there for his guidance and his knowledge, but I don't know how much of that he actually provides. And to be fair, there were a lot of Kennedy performances that kind of fell into that, you know, into that vibe at this point in time. He was kind of just doing things, kind of cash a paycheck and and show up. Uh, he is a much better actor than what you see here. Andrew Stevens, is he a much better actor than what you see here? I don't know, but I've at least seen Stevens in movies, including a movie that was made either a year to either the same year as this or a year after this or a year before this called, I think it's called Scared Stiff, a horror movie that is pretty interesting. It's not a great movie, but there Stevens has a little bit more to work with. Here, he's really just feels like a placeholder that someone put in place and said, must get better actor <laughs> he's just kind of there in that in that role and i feel like that's what this movie is it's almost as if hey i need to make sure that the i'm getting the lighting right and everything so i'm just gonna have you 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 and you stand in stand in for the actors when they show up except no new actors show up <laughs> so i, I do have with to, you guys i do have to make mention of the guns that they use they <laughs> looked cheesy as hell they either look like plastic water guns or I actually wrote down a caulking gun. That's really yeah. what they look like. like. They're just round plastic tubes that are supposed to be emanating, you know, some kind of tectonic energy coming from it. And it looks like, you know, I can see them practicing doing it. And they're just like shooting their kids over tables. Like they were awful. Yeah, like bad, like 
level of like it the tear from space or you know night of the blood beast level like and not improved and this is 1989 okay and i would laugh at movies from this era there's a movie i think it's called i come in peace or it has a couple different titles i think i come in peace is the one i think of it with Dolph Dolph, 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 yeah and that movie's funny because in in it you clearly have some actual like guns that they just taped pieces of stuff to you know, and here's my big futuristic weapon. That always makes me laugh. But at least it's a weapon, right? At least it's a weapon. Like what you pointed out is they look like they took a bunch of office supplies and they were maybe at some sort of like, uh, you know, team building exercise retreat. And it's like, okay, what futuristic weapons can you make with duct tape and the stuff in this box? Go. It looks like they stopped by the plumbing shop on the way. Yeah. yeah. So for me, I I just didn't get a lot of entertainment out of it. It was very boring. It was sluggish. And I like these kinds of movies, even goofy monster movies where you just have monster eat eat human and run around. But the intruder within angle, the angle of of, of the of the human women sort of giving birth to this thing, that seems ridiculous. It's not entertaining. It's kind of, it's shoddy. The monster crawls through the pipes. It's everything you've seen before. I just didn't get anything out of it. I mean, for me, this is a, this is not that high above some of the other ones. It's better made, but it's not that much more interesting. I'm still going to probably give this one a three and say, for the most part, you can you can avoid it. I did rewatch the second one too because as I was watching this, that one popped into my brain, and I was like, oh, I, maybe the good stuff happens in the second movie, but it doesn't. Well, here's what I'll say uh, on the positive side. I did think that the musical score was better than deserved. I thought it wasn't that bad. When you're watching these kind of movies, you got to find something, right? Uh, and I didn't realize alien monsters were that horny. Uh, he tries to have his way with a couple different females. And yeah, the one, that was ridiculous. That, that was just awful. And and But the one thing I did smile at is the very end. At the end, uh, Andrew Stevens and another survivor are out in the arid desert, which I think kind of looks like the desert in Spaceballs. That's, you know, yeah, comb the desert. Comb the desert. I ain't seen whatever it is for three weeks. Um, but at the end, he goes, adios, motherfucker. And I didn't know if he was channeling uh, Bruce Willis from Die Hard or Arnold Schwarzenegger in one of his many lines. I didn't know. Predator. I can guarantee you it was Predator. <laughs> because, again, it was just like, what pieces can we, we could throw here? But he delivered that line with... The least amount of energy that everybody anybody has ever delivered that line. Yeah, my, I, grand, I, I, my grandmother could make that line more imposing. Yeah, I, 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 I give this about a two and a half. Yeah, you know what? The heck, the heck with my generous, generous uh, other. Ha- yeah, yeah, two and two and a half is about right. It's not. It's but not the, a good movie. It's not really worth your time. The the, the monster isn't half bad. It's rubbery. But it, at least it has a little bit of a scare factor to it. But the scenes, I mean, they literally just took the script from Aliens and just kind of readjusted it for them. I was, I, go ahead. It's the way he comes out of the shadows and stuff, though. He just sort of comes barging in like the Kool-Aid man. Like, it's never really that insidious. You know what I mean? Like, in Alien, there's that beautiful shot in Alien. And this whole movie just goes to vindicate Ridley Scott and all of his choices. But, like... You realize that the creature has been, you know, it is inserted itself up inside of the spaceship in a way in which Sigourney Weaver can't see it. And it's been sitting there in front of you for how long? And you didn't even know it was there. Is anything like that remotely happened in this movie? Well, the other the other part of it is, is I thought he went up into the air, de- uh, air ducts, yet they were walking, standing straight up, going after him. 
So was it a hallway or was it an air duct? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> if you want a better version of this, uh, what's the one that John Carpenter did? His very early, was it Star Crash? No, no, you do tell me Dark Star. Dark Star. Dark Star. That's even a better version of this type of film. Well, Dark Star is a better version of this type of, this type of film because of a very important key ingredient, which is humor. Dark Star, even at its its date when it comes out, is a spoof of bad science fiction movies. You know, I, my memory, my favorite scene, I believe, in Dark Star is where the one of the, the guys on the spaceship is being sent to feed the alien that they picked up somewhere on a planet. And he's grumbling and complaining about it. And you see him go down these hallways. And, and again, that's another movie. They kind of make fun of the logistics of the ship. The ship doesn't look that big, but there's a vast corridor with a giant like elevator shaft in it. Like, where did that come from on the ship? But I think Carpenter is aware of that, right? And then the monster comes out, and it's literally a beach ball with feet. <laughs> it's funny. Anybody yeah, who hasn't seen yeah. it, it's worth looking into. Dark Star is, Dark Star is worth uh, uh, about 50 pair within. <laughs> So, I think no, we've given this movie more talk than it really well, deserves. More, more than it is. So let's move on. And 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 we've been so far kind of sticking to. We end up picking kind of B movies, I think, so far. And we always have a we always have at least one dog. So I think this was hopefully that's that was uh, this was <clears throat> our this week's dog. So, uh, Bill, do you want to talk about the movie that I picked for you? So the wonderful movie that uh, Sir Nathan has chosen for me is Doctor Mordred. 1992. And when you see the directors, Albert Band and Charles Band, you start to lick your lips. At least I do. Because Charles Band is a heck of a lot of fun. He's kind of a Roger Corman type in terms of, he never has a budget. But he seems to get a little bit more out of it than many of the Corman films. So when I first watched this, I didn't know anything about it. I had to ask Nathan what it's about, where I can find it, blah, 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 blah. It stars Mr. Jeffrey Combs. And Mr. Jeffrey Combs is beloved in the science fiction and horror genres for Beyond, uh, Reanimator and Beyond Reanimator and um, From Beyond. From Beyond and all those. And he's done a lot. He's a very good actor. And so I'll give you the IMDb synopsis. An unspeakable evil has come into our dimensions and wants to rule over Earth. And only a mysterious sorcerer known as Dr. Mordred can stop him. Now, the runtime isn't that long. It's only 74 minutes. So the, it's almost like an expanded uh, sci-fi TV show that they've kind of crunched together. So it's a full moon film. At the beginning, a shipment of, pl of platinum and money is stolen from a truck by an evil time traveler. This, uh, this person comes down. He's got like a white cloak. He's got long blonde hair. He's a little imposing. And he wants what's in the truck well we shift over to an apartment complex where we're, we're met dr mordred played by jeffrey combs in his apartment he has a setup where he can kind of see what's going on in the world in the interterrestrial world but he also is a professor of criminology and the supernatural and he gives lectures on the supernatural space stars how everything kind of connects and how it can affect criminal behavior and, and actually, if you listen to the little bit that they give, they wrote him up a really good little speech about it because a lot of it does make sense. Now, 
He has a neighbor, Samantha Hunt, played by Yvette Napier, who works as a consultant for the police station in cult and Satanistic cases. You know, when there's a murder or something or there's a cult that's killed people, she's called in to try to give her two cents worth. But she has also been to one of Dr. Mordred's uh, lectures, uh, unbeknownst to him. Uh, so we find the name of the person who's come down. His name is Cabal. And he has been cast out of heaven. Turns out him and Dr. Mordred back in the day were of equal footing and they had these special powers. But Dr. Mordred decided to kind of help people out and Cabal wanted things for himself. So he went the wrong way and Jeffrey Combs went the right way. Um, and they were competing with magic amulets. So Dr. Mordred has this amulet and he can kind of use that as his secret power holder. And so a war between these two kids that happened way back when has continued to this day. And Mordred is out basically in the world trying to make sure that the world is in a good way and protecting itself from Cabal. And uh, Jeffrey Combs gets taken to the police station and they're trying to hold him because some things have happened in town. And he eventually breaks out with the help of the neighbor, Samantha, and an epic battle happens at a local museum. Uh, it's a, kind of one of the science and nature museums involving dinosaurs, stop motion, some claymation, and some over-the-top silliness. And you know what? At the end of the at the end of it, I'm not going to tell you how it turns out. Not that you really need to know because you can figure it out. Uh, it's kind of a low-end uh, Marvel superhero kind of thing before they became popular but it was i wrote down cheesy fun low-end effects better than expected acting except cabal i didn't think the guy that played cabal was very good but jeffrey combs gives it his best uh the uh, yvette napier gives it her best and even the police at the uh at the station give it their best especially the investigating officer he does a really good i think it's jay akavone i believe his name is I would give this a six out of 10. I think it's worth a watch. Charles Band is always fun. Uh, you know what you're gonna get in terms of the uh, effects, in terms of the makeup, in terms of the costuming, but it's easy to follow. It's not that complex. It's kind of a popcorn movie. It's when you can show your kids. I don't think there's anything that's really offensive. Uh, there's some neat uh, interdimensional time leaps here and there. And I think anybody that likes superhero movies, anybody that likes sci-fi movies, anybody that likes low-budget uh, but fun movies, check this one out. Yeah, and you mentioned that you felt it was a low-end, kind of a low-end Marvel movie or almost a uh, Marvel kind of rip-off movie. This is a good point. This is a good place to talk about something that we're going to revisit in just a little bit on the same episode, which is the idea that in 1992, when this movie comes out, you know, superhero movies weren't really burning up the box office, certainly not Marvel movies. 92, the summer of 92, you do get Batman Returns, and that was a big deal. But even when you look at those movies, they don't look like the comic book movies we're used to today. The Superman franchise had burned out pretty much completely. A year or so before this, you had a really bad Captain America movie. Uh, just a really, really um, 
awful piece of toss. You can find that. Uh, it, did you ever see that one, um, Bill? No. It was probably actually years see that. before this. There was that one, and there was the really bad Punisher film. Yes, Punisher was about the same time frame with Dolph Lundgren. And so what you had were these low-budget companies getting the rights to these movies that would be potentially big-budget franchise movies now, but then there was a question of, will these movies be hits? Yes, they were still popular franchises. Yes, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Roger Corbin and the Fantastic Four and what happened there. But around the same time, everybody wanted to make these movies. And after years of trying to get them made, I think people were just sort of giving up and like, okay, here, have this. And so Full Moon initially is in talks to make a Doctor Strange movie. And in fact, what they basically made is a Doctor Strange movie. You talk about his apartment, it looks like Doctor Strange's sanctum sanctorium that Stephen Strange has in his house where he can kind of keep an eye on everything that's happening in all the cosmic dimensions. And essentially, that's what Dr. Mordred is doing. I mean, he is Doctor Strange. Brian Thompson's character, Cabal, he is sort of like the Baron character. You know, these are all these characters. Uh, he, Each of these characters has a analog and it's not just that they're ripping something off. They made, I believe they wrote a Doctor Strange movie and then had to change all of these little pieces to make it to to make it work. And they were still able to repackage it. Now, have you seen Doctor Strange, the movie? The, no, the I, few years no back? I, I'm not really into the superhero ones. So actually, this is where our listeners can help us out and give me some of these types of movies that I should get into. Because other than Iron Man and Superman with... Christopher Reeves. I haven't seen many of them at all. You might enjoy. You might actually enjoy Doctor Strange, uh, particularly because well, it's directed. The the um, the person that directs it is the same director who did Sinister and uh, Sinister and the Exorcism of Emily Rose. Oh, Scott okay. Derrickson. He also so did one of the Hellraiser movies. So uh, it's got a bit of a dark edge to it. It has, it it does, and it has some some very visually interesting things going on in the movie it gets a little bit trippy at points it has a kind of cosmic horror element to it it's not a horror film i do hear that the second movie that's coming out i think which is dr strange in the multiverse of madness and sam raimi's attached to that one i think that one is going to push into the horror so it, dr strange is a good place to start i think and particularly because you've seen this i might be fun for you to to compare the two i i agree with what you said i actually enjoy this movie as a fun little b movie that doesn't have a lot of money to its name at all it is doing what it can with what it's got and what it does have is jeffrey combs who was always fun to watch is he as good as he is in the Stuart gordon movies where gordon is directing him in a very um you know as if he's a, a stage play director and he's got a lot of that really sharp popping dialogue no it's not i mean as you pointed out he's got a couple of uh, interesting little speeches but a lot of what combs has to say in this movie it would have been laughed out of a laughed out of an episode of Lost in Space in the '60s. You know what I mean? It's just not particularly very interesting. But Combs makes a lot of it work with his facial expressions and just the kind of weird oddball energy he gives it. You know, he he, 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 he brings a certain charisma to the role. But it's an odd offhand charisma. You're right. It's like. It's like he kind of – it's almost like at times he's just looking at the audience and he's giving you that little wink and nudge that the Marvel movies are sometimes almost too serious to do. Like they'll give you a big joke, but then you got to take the rest of it serious. And while Combs is explaining all the cosmic gobbledygook, he's like 
he's doing it with an idea that even Dr. Mordred thinks it's ridiculous that he has to do all these crazy things. You know, Dr. Mordred seems about as, as fed up with all this weird interdimensional travel stuff as anybody else when he's talking to the great forces in the sky. And there's an interesting care, a friend of his who guards basically, it's like a, the giant tube of evil that contains all the, you know, it's like a grab bag of monsters that if it ever opens up, our universe is doomed. So this guy <laughs> just sits out front of it with a crossbow that 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 portion of it, it took me a little while to wrap my head around. I'm like, who the hell is this? What is he talking about? <laughs> right, right. And Rich Brinkley, and he kind of plays it kind of fun because he seems like a guy that you would just meet in a bar somewhere. But he's yeah. he's in charge of the Galactic Brigade to keep these monsters in place. Brian Thompson, who plays Cabal, he looks like he wandered off of like a Renaissance festival or like a LARP somewhere. You know, it's like yeah. uh, that it was dress up day at, at Dungeons and Dragons night, but. Thompson is not actually a bad actor. He's just not – he's the wrong choice here to put across somebody – across from someone like Jeffrey Combs. Like, I, Jeffrey I, Combs can't spar with Brian Thompson. I, I was not impressed with it. Now, I mean, it could be that's the direction he was given, how to play him. It could just have been the role. I didn't think that he gave a lot of energy to it. No, you can find him he's, – he's always the muscle, I mean, for the most part. And he's been used better in movies like uh, an early Roland Emmerich movie, Moon 44. He was better in that. He was better in Fright Night Part 2 where he was the kind of goon that always ate all the bugs. He was he would name a insect and then pop it into his mouth. And he, he was in – he's in The X-Files and he was also in uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer playing villains and monsters there. So he's not a – a great actor. He's somebody who, when he shows up, sometimes I'm like, okay, you can you can have fun with what he's doing. But here, he's got he's got some of the same dialogue that Combs has. He doesn't know what to do with it. He just says it, and then he mutters half of it. So not a not a very convincing villain. Everyone else is sort of just it's just they kind of come in and out of Combs's orbit. There's some fun stop motion. When we're talking about Harryhausen, the level of craft that's a that's there in a Harryhausen movie is not necessarily evident here, but I do think there's some passion that goes into particularly one scene where the two dueling wizards, instead of just having, you know, you expect them to just have the beam shoot out of their hands at each other, and that's ridiculous, and I'm glad the movie mostly avoided that, and so instead their battle of wills uh, manifests itself as a, they're inside of a museum, a natural history museum, and a T-Rex skeleton and a Mastodon skeleton come to life and sort of battle it out. And I could have used a few more scenes of that battle, but I did like that. I thought that was a little inspired. I thought that was a little bit more than what you might expect. I just realized I kind of glossed over, there was that whole subplot about his minion uh, guy coming out and doing some of his dirty work for him. Yeah, uh, his his uh, younger friend with the who had the female who he he had his way with the female and the male went out and got arrested as well. Yeah, that's just all padding, though. I mean, you basically yeah. this Doctor Mordred movie is band is pushing to make it an hour. This really could have been a pilot for a television show, and I think if you had removed a lot of those subplots, you could have sold me on the idea of watching Jeffrey Combs be Dr. Mordred every week. You could have easily sold me on that. In fact, in the 70s, there was a pilot made for Dr. Strange, and it's not even half as good as this movie is. Not that this movie is excellent or amazing, but I I do think it's a lot of fun to watch. Uh, the one thing about the subplot I will say is that that does bring in some stuff that makes this not really a kid's movie. That's the weird part. It has just enough violence, just enough sex and everything that it does earn the R rating. But this movie cannot, is in no way been produced or engineered for adults. 
You know, no, this movie no. is made for like a 10, 11 year old birthday party. And yet it's also got the, the R rated content in it, not excessive R rated content, but enough that you're like, okay, I can't just sit this down in front of the kids and, and walk off. No, it, it, I mean, you get everything from a naked girl in a cult to uh, superhero costumes. And it's kind of like, what does X have to do with Y? So what is your rating on this one, Bill? I give this one a 6 out of 10. Yeah, and that would be that'd be what I give it, a 6, because I do think it's fun. I think you can have a lot of fun with it. And as a B movie, uh, verging on C maybe, I think it, it, you, there, there's some interesting elements to it. And honestly, people who are burned out on the Marvel movies might actually enjoy some of this a little bit better, particularly if you like the quirkiness of of watching someone like Combs. I would I would love to have seen Jeffrey Combs in a big-budget Doctor Strange movie. I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he's a great actor. But Combs has a little bit of oddness to him that I think plays well for this cosmic kind of character. And it, the movie it's, around- it, I was going to say, it's interesting seeing a, a Corman-produced film versus a Charles Band film. Because they're probably working with similar style budgets, but what they do with them, they take them in much different directions. And it depends. And, and Band had a lot of movies that weren't very good either. This Empire had kind of fallen apart at this point. Empire's the one he did Troll and a lot of those other movies under under that banner. And movies like The Eliminators and Zone Troopers, which are probably some of my favorite Charles Band movies. And, the, and of course, The Reanimator and the movies that he did with Stu Gordon, uh, those early ones. Now, he did a couple with Stuart Gordon under Full Moon as well, like... Pit in the Pendulum, which I think was the same year or, or right before this one. But Dr. Mordred was, came in that period of time when he's making things like uh, Doll Man and the Demonic Toys and the Transfer sequels. And the, and there's a lot of energy going on in these movies. Seed People, these are not great movies, but they're a lot of fun to watch. Subspecies, you know, all of these movies are probably all at about the same level. And the thing that strikes me is that Van was trying to do what Marvel does now, right? Like he was almost trying to build a cinematic universe uh, that was like a that each of these movies was like a comic book. And I think he was aiming at kids or young teenagers that were interested in the comic books. That was really that was his niche. You look at the cover art for these movies; they look like a comic book. And he just he he didn't quite have the resources, and he wasn't quite he was a little ahead of his time, I think, in that regard. Yeah, I think he probably did the most with what he had. So that's our VOD segment. We won't pick the new movies just yet because we will get to our uh, our sort of feature review, if you want, if you want to call it that, where we'll we'll go in on a movie and maybe a little bit more in depth. This movie, this is now the third time we've done this, and each time we've ended up picking a science fiction movie. So far, they've been science fiction movies, uh, an independent, for the most part, science fiction movie, and movies that are actually pretty interesting and actually pretty thoughtful and this isn't we aren't really going into this with that in mind you know i picked vast of night originally because it was the newest thing that was out on amazon prime and i i wanted to see it i thought it'd be fun to review bill you came across the man from earth and thought hey this would be interesting so it's not like we've gone in with this specific aim at finding thoughtful like intelligent science fiction movies it just so happens that so far we've been kind of chasing barking up that tree and I had never seen this movie. I think I had been vaguely aware that it existed because uh, I had seen trailers for it and was is kind of aware when it came out. But this movie is called Starfish. It came out in 2018. It's directed by A.T. White. And it's 
when you're watching the trailers for it, I saw the trailers for it, you can definitely tell it's an independent film, but there's a lot of visual panache going on in the trailer. Virginia Gardner is the lead. And so we, we decided to do this movie. And I'll go ahead and give us kind of the setup, but I will warn you ahead of time with this movie, with Starfish. It's available on Amazon Prime. You can watch it for free if you have Amazon Prime with a subscription. But I will say up front that this is a movie that is probably best to go into knowing as little as possible. Even as I give you my basic synopsis for this movie, I'm going to keep it very basic. I might even go the IMDb route. And then when we talk about it, for, for the most part, at least at the beginning here, I'm probably going to keep my thoughts about what's happening because I only understand it so much to a minimum. Because I, Bill, would you agree this is a good movie to kind of let it wash over you at least once without knowing that much about it? Or at least once. <laughs> yeah, at, at, <laughs> least, at least once. But not. I think not knowing is the way to go into this movie. I think that's yeah. where, kind of where the director wants you. Maybe that's where they want you at the end, too, not knowing. But Well, so I, I, and I was going to say, I'll tell the audience, I didn't know about this movie until a week ago. So I went in as, as green and as cold as you could get. Yeah, I had seen a trailer, then I, had saw, I saw someone... Uh, post about it recently about a DVD or a Blu-ray of it coming out. And I thought, oh, you know, I still haven't seen that movie. And then sure enough, there it was on Amazon. And then I reacquainted myself with the trailer. I'm going to read the synopsis. Actually, we will mix it up and read the one from Rotten Tomatoes this time. When a mysterious signal triggers an event that sparks the end of the world, Aubrey Parker Parker is trapped in her dead best friend's apartment with a single cassette tape labeled, This Mixtape Will Save the World. With reality fraying at the edges, Aubrey must unlock the secrets of the signal. A secret that could end up saving the world or condemning it. And that's that's mostly right. That is a synopsis that describes some of what's happening in this movie. I was going to say that's better probably than the IMDb synopsis. The IMDb synopsis, yeah. And it sounds like I've just given it a lot away, but when watching this movie, and, and when you start watching this movie... You may sit there and think, well, wait a minute. What about that synopsis? But let's let's talk about it a little bit. That is basically what's happening. And you do have uh, Virginia Gardner, who I think is giving a really good performance as Aubrey. When you meet her at the start of this movie, it's clear that she is in a place of grief. She's in a place of sadness. And the very opening scenes are a little... Uh, they're a little mysterious. Those very openings are sort of a, a bookends that what's happening there is what you'll see as the movie progresses. You'll have a better understanding for those opening images. But once those opening images pass, you have uh, Virginia Gardner's character, Aubrey. She's at she's basically at a um, uh, it's, it looks like it's after the funeral. It's probably reception back at the home where the family has everybody in and there's there's food and she is she's looking across the room and she's imagining that she sees her her dead friend uh, who's played by Christina Masterson in these images in these moments where you see her uh, she's playing Grace uh, but we don't know a lot about Grace we don't even know that much about Aubrey's relationship to her and we don't ever really learn exactly uh, how Grace died although there are implications and and possible uh reasonings to what happened there we just don't get a lot of this we are watching people walk through these events and we get enough to know that someone has died 
that Aubrey was very close to this someone. We also see Eric B. Croft, who plays Edward. He is there also. But again, he's a he's a person who she sees across the room. She makes eye contact with. Clearly, there's a relationship there as well. And the movie doesn't really tie any bows on these relationships. We don't know exactly. And Aubrey herself may not know exactly what her relationship is or ultimately was to these people. And as the story progresses, we see Aubrey go to her as it's mentioned, her dead friend's apartment. And there in the apartment, she's sort of picking through Grace's old thing. She sees Grace's bed. She she takes in the, the indented pillow and that hasn't, you know, someone was laying there and now they're not. And she can't get over this sort of oppressiveness that her friend is gone and there's nothing she can do about it. She tries to feed the jellyfish. She puts the little starfish into the jellyfish tank and she walks around and she talks to the little turtle that's there. And you get this basic feeling of someone trying to come to grips uh, with their with the passing of their friend and the fact that this person isn't around anymore and will never be around again. And it, it, it looks like it's taking place on New Year's Eve. Oh. Aubrey goes to sleep. And then when she wakes up in the morning, the world is blanketed in snow and everyone else seems to be gone, like gone, gone. She sees one or two people running frantic through the streets uh, here or there, but that's about it. And then the other thing is that there is wreckage. You know, we can see the signs of struggles, that things have been broken up, cars have been destroyed, there are buildings that seem to have uh, holes and things in them, and there's a sense that something has happened here. Stuff's not on fire, a lot of it's not smoking. She does see some, some smoke plumes sort of uh, wafting up but much like when we reviewed the earth die screaming there's not a lot of even you don't even see bodies here you know you just see that everyone is basically gone and then it it does become clear that there are potentially i would say clear it becomes apparent that she is not alone and there are possibly monsters uh creatures of some kind maybe alien in origin that are running around here and they're they come in various sizes there are smaller creepy ones and there are large lumbering ones and sort of there's a beautiful shot of this thing i don't want to get too much in detail that is sort of making its way across the horizon line and that shot in of itself is just amazing and there are a lot of amazing shots in this movie because when we find the mixtape the mixtape it's implied that this mixtape may have may have been used the signal within the tape has been used to open up gateways portals and if we can find all of the tapes and play them again, we may be able to go systematically through and close those portals. And that gives the director, White, an opportunity to do uh, something that's kind of interesting. He can now sort of mark the different segments of his movie and do some visually different things with each segment as Aubrey finds one of these tapes. And because the movie is primarily about grief and primarily about a person who is sort of caught in the limbo of what grief is like, whether that's heartbreak over a broken relationship or heartbreak over the loss of a life, it, 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 it's the sort of scenario, even, even maybe something that be uh, comparable to depression, you see a person trapped within loneliness and isolation and in a world where no matter what else is going on, their concerns and the weight of their own pain is kind of bearing down on them. And here it seems manifested in these creatures in the fact that uh, Aubrey can't even communicate with anyone else except over a walkie-talkie in some moments. There's a disconnect and a distance between herself and any other human connection. She's left then to the devices of her own mind and to the devices of 
these different mistakes and pains that she's caused. So we see some of those flashbacks. We see her talking to, I want to say Grace's ghost. It's not Grace's ghost. It is the image of Grace that she has in her mind. But this sci-fi story does allow then that the worlds look different. We have an animation sequence that's pretty cool. We have sequences where they are able to kind of play up the special effects and just moody scenes where Aubrey wearing almost like a wolf skin is wandering around this frozen this frozen setting trying to figure out what happened. And I thought all of those things worked in an interesting way that kind of throws you off because uh, you're never quite exactly sure what's happening. I will say I don't think the movie's as confusing as it may seem on the surface, but we're given a lot of latitude about what we think and what we believe the movie's about. I don't think it's as... It reminded me of movies like Annihilation and Donnie Darko, but it's not as concrete with its science fiction. And, and that allows the metaphor of the grieving and of the sadness. And this is sort of how it feels sometimes when you have someone who's no longer in your life. And there, there's a barrier between you being able to reconnect with them. And you were left mostly with your thoughts and your memories and your feelings of them. And then the mistakes you made. And that's a lot of what this movie, I think, is about. Even though it's visually beautiful and it's also the the oral element, the, the, the sound element of this, the soundtrack is really engaging. It's a lot of fun to listen to. This movie has a great soundtrack. The songs on that mixtape, they, they actually reflect and in, inform what's going on in Aubrey's life. If you're to listen to the lyrics and everything. So I thought this movie was from beginning to end, a constantly engaging and really interesting ride. I was really happy. I saw it. I do tend to really like movies like this. I think Virginia Gardner is a huge reason why it does work. Cause she does seem like a person who's going through a period of grief and she's not sure if the door she's opening are going to save her or just cast her deeper down into this misery that she's, she's enduring right now. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you the other point of view that the other half of the audience is going to have when they watch it. I didn't get it. I understood kind of what was going on as the story's going, but as Nathan alluded to, they keep it really vague. And I like a trippy movie. I like an out there movie. I like one that makes you think like Donnie Darko. I really enjoyed Annihilation. I really enjoyed uh, Bliss and Braid and all those kind of ones. I enjoyed those trippy. It's almost an apocalypse now. It's kind of all over the place, but I kept watching because the acting is good and the musical soundtrack, as Nathan said, is very, very good. I just didn't know what the hell was going on in the film because there's so many different things that are thrown at you. It's completely left into your interpretation. Uh, and again, I like a slow burn. I have no problem with a slow burn movie as long as there's a payoff at the end. This one is a slow build to something and then it goes to something and it goes to something. It's like a detective movie, but you're not quite sure what you're looking for at the end. Um, Cause she gets these cassette tapes and you, you have to take little pieces from each cassette tape. I will say that the scene that Nathan talked about with the monster kind of reminded me a little of Cloverfield. Uh, it's a very visually stunning one. And there is another scene later uh, at the beginning and at the end where there's a, a man whose face has kind of been blown off in the middle and it turns around. That was really well done. That was really cool. And, but at the end of the day, I was left with more questions than I was answers. Like, it's up to your interpretation. Is this movie about mental illness? Is this about grief over a friend? 
Is this about a lost male lover that they keep bringing into the movie from time to time? Was this all a dream? Does the person commit suicide? Who, uh, when there was a person talking on the walkie-talkie, who was that? Whatever happened to them? Does this walkie-talkie just represent something? Or is it a figurative thing? Is this about her coming to grips with what has happened? I was I, I left with more questions than I did answers, which sometimes is a good thing. But at the end of the at the end of this, I was just scrambling, scratching my head. I very much make this to me very much like a movie Suspiria in the horror realm. A lot of people love Suspiria. A lot of people can't stand Suspiria. I fall on the side of I'm not a huge fan of Suspiria, but I'll tell you why. And it applies to this film as well. It's beautifully shot. It's very atmospheric. There's lots of sounds and colors. And the female strong lead is very strong. But the story for me was too disjointed. It was too all over the place. Now, that may make me sound like I'm an unsophisticated viewer, but I've seen my fair share of movies and I just, it's not that I couldn't follow it. I just didn't know where it was going. So maybe I should have taken an edible before I watched this. I don't know. <laughs> that might have helped. But for me, uh, it just wouldn't be one that I'm revisiting. Now, that's not to say it won't be your bag, because obviously Nathan represents the other side, and he really dug it. I really love The Endless, and I loved uh, Annihilation, and so that's why this one I was hoping for a bit more. It just didn't give it to me as a movie viewer. But Nathan obviously did, and good for him because I have to get his uh, crib notes on this because I didn't get it all. <laughs> well, I'm kind of excited because, I mean, uh, I'm actually kind of excited because we actually finally sort of disagree on a movie because I feel like we've been pretty much lockstep in, in a lot of them. And not that I think that we disagree in a certain sense because I'll say this one thing I really dislike about when people tend to really um, build these movies up movies like this that are that are more than what's going on on the surface and it's very clear that yes this movie wants you to think more about it than just what it is presented to you as a series of events you know I don't think anyone would watch this movie and think hey what's happening on screen is exa- I'm supposed to take everything at face value you know I think that's probably clear but some when people like these sorts of movies, they tend to say things like, well, you just don't get it. It was, it was really trying to be sophisticated. And like, those things may be true, but I have never enjoyed it. Someone telling me, you're just too dumb for this movie. And I think the thing about a lot of these movies and Annihilation and The Endless, and those movies too, I think were a little more concrete. I'll, I can talk a little bit about what I think about that in a minute. But a movie like Donnie Darko, that goes all over the place. And it's got a lot of weird loopholes, but it does try to, again, deal with these things are actually happening. You're trying to figure out the mystery of what's happening on screen. And what's happening on screen is actually happening, but it's happening because of the of the use of supernatural or physics-defying elements. A movie like Starfish is about a completely different thing, I believe, but it's using a, a, a trope or a, a sort of... Uh, concept. It's using science fiction as a flavor, as a vehicle to explore this other thing. Uh, and that means that the science fiction story isn't really going to be able to be held up to snuff. So when someone says, oh, you just didn't get it. No, no, I think that this movie is very easy to be uh, perceived what's going on. But whether you enjoy it or not is going to do a lot with 
do you enjoy that kind of thing, which is a purely subjective question, not an intellectual one. And in actually, I don't think this movie is really an intellectual sci-fi. I said a thinking movie. I, what, a lot of thought has been going in to develop it. But I think it's meant to be a mood movie, if you will. I mean, it's the mixtape concept. And I right now, I would say, let's give our ratings. But I kind of want to talk about it because if anyone sees this movie, I do want to leave. You know, maybe we should leave our version of the mixtape about what we think is actually going on. And Bill, you had said you had five or six thoughts, so I'm actually interested to hear them. But I don't think this is a movie that's about being solved. It's just about do you enjoy the journey? And some people will enjoy it, and some people won't. I do think, Bill, this is different to me than Suspiria, because for me, Suspiria is purely surface level. I like Suspiria, but I'm with you. I don't think it's a masterpiece. Suspiria is all about the eye candy and the, and the, and the, the Goblin soundtrack and everything happening to me on a superficial sensory level. I don't think a minute about anything that's happening in that movie once it ends. But I wouldn't say that's the case here. I feel like I was still, on an emotional level and even a thought level, still processing a lot of what this movie was giving me after it was over. And I think a second viewing would would unlock things that I didn't get the first time through. And I don't think that's necessarily true of Suspiria. Love it as people may. I think Suspiria, at least the, the remake, I would say, the remake of Suspiria is closer to that kind of movie than the original. I think the original is basically what you see is what you get. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I'm with you in terms of a second viewing probably will clear some of the things up. And I do think, as I said, it's a well-produced, it's very atmospheric, it's kind of dark, it's kind of got that indie low lighting kind of feel to it. The lead actress is quite strong in it. I just didn't think it knew what kind of movie it was. And I don't mind cross-genre films. You know, it can be one of five different action horror, sci-fi, fantasy, drama. But is it a is it a monster movie? Is it a movie that's a drama about grief? Is it a supernatural movie? Is it a, a an apocalyptic movie? Is it got a little bit of Will Smith and I Am Legend in it? Like it's it's all over the place. It's all those and things. I it's, just, it's the mixtape genre. That's what it is. Song one. <laughs> song one is I Am Legend. Song two is Annihilation. I That sounds silly, but I think when we when we go into the spoiler section, I have a case to be made why I think that might be what the movie is. And, but, and, and, um, and, and there are strong, at certain points, strong sensual elements to the film. Uh, there is a scene involving female masturbation where you don't see anything, but I'm wondering, is it a physical, she needs the physical relief by masturbating to get rid of the grief she's feeling, or does it represent something else? Uh, there's scenes alluding to a lover of a male that she's had in her past and a beach scene let's where hold, one character. Let's hold that for a second yep, because I have a lot all of that. thoughts on that. On that. So uh, my rating right now, if you were to put a gun to my head, would be five out of 10. Okay, and my rating would be actually 8.5 out of 10. Um, again, I, I really loved it. I can't wait to see it again. But I again, I guess this is a subjective thing. Bill was describing this movie to me because he started, he watched it before I did. He was describing a couple lines of it, you know, or he was describing it in a couple lines across text. And you were saying, like, this, this is kind of bewildering. And just in the few things that Bill was writing to me, I could see, I was like, hmm, I don't know if he's going to like it. And as he was also writing it, the same thought in my head was, I bet I'm going to love this. So it's definitely, it's different strokes for different folks. It's just, that's, that's how the world is. And I'm glad it's that way. And so for now though, I would recommend you see it. I think that, and it seems like I was noticed and I posted something on Facebook about seeing the movie and all these people are coming out and saying, oh yeah, good movie. I've seen this. 
where was I that I didn't even know that, you know, there's a lot of people talking about they've already caught this movie. And I just, I honestly, it, it passed me by. I wasn't aware of it. And I usually seek these kind of movies out. So I'm a little surprised that I was behind the curve on finding it, but I am glad we saw it. And I do, I do like it. Now with the, with the five rating, would you say recommend it, Bill, at least for a, for a I, I, one month? I think that if you can appreciate a well-produced, well-directed film, it is recommended to watch. If you're watching it for an entertainment POV, it may not be what you're looking for. And that's fair. So what I'll do right now is go to a very brief spoiler segment. And in the show notes, if you're listening to this, I will put uh, time tags on this one so that you can see when we come back and we're going to talk about one more movie very quickly. And then we're going to wrap this episode up and put our recommendations in. But before we do that, I am going to just have this one segment where we can talk about the movie now that everybody's seen it. And I, I will say this about it. So here's commence spoilers. I do think that the movie's pretty straightforward. And I do think uh, to an extent, to an extent, I know what you're saying, Bill, it isn't straightforward in the sense it does go all over the place, but I think that that scattershot approach is also trying to say something. It is that I, for someone who has gone through, grief of a certain kind that's portrayed in this movie i think the movie is about that it is about that processing of grief and what i mean is it's about that and that the monsters and everything else seem to be representations of how this director and these people telling the story are trying to solidify and crystallize the feelings and emotions that are almost indescribable when you're in this place and it's same thing is true sometimes of being in a depressed state you have all these feelings and there's turmoil and it feels like your world is ending and that you're in a silo and you're alone and yet you can't really convey how this feels and you look for some way through the grief and the hurt and i don't bill are you that like i know what mixtapes are i've seen them used in lots of different movies and things like that but up until it was years before i ever had the experience of receiving a mixtape have you ever received a mixtape that was anything more than hey here's 10 songs you should listen to but you know i learned that people I was going to say, I, back in university, I used to do a lot of uh, bootleg audio cassettes. So I would receive multiple, multiple cassettes in the mail from people all over North America for certain bands. And so I, I know that energy that you get. Oh, I can't wait to stick it in the tape player. I used to have my Maxell XL2s. I used to have tons and tons of them because they were the ones that you used. So I kind of know that frenetic energy. And so... I know when you stick it in, you're kind of like, you're hoping for the best, but you're not quite sure what you're going to get. And uh, this one is, it's almost apoplectic for this film. You're not quite sure what you're going to get. And so you, they, she sticks it in. And th- I will say the music is great. Uh, I think it reminded me of like early 2000s, you know, kind of Brit pop kind of stuff. Uh, but, yeah, um, it did, yeah. It, yeah, it's like semi-sonic or something you think was playing on there or something. Oasis. But um <laughs> Oasis or whatever it was, you know. Um, I figured as I was watching that the monsters represented something to do with grief or some kind of personal anguish. And I didn't know, that's why I alluded to, I didn't know if this had to do with mental illness or mental illness brought on because of the death of a friend. I didn't know if these monsters were representational or if there was something like I kept waiting for the script to play out a bit more and it never really did. So you're kind of left with 
your own interpretation, which you're never quite going to be wrong with because they never really are clear with it. And I don't mind a film that challenges you, but at the end of the day, I just didn't find like I came up with answers that were good enough to, in my mind, to let me know what was going on in the film. Well, and I think that that's the thing. There is an elliptical nature to this particular movie where it is more about a kind of tone poem. It's more about an imprinting on what's happening here. And they, and their feeling, which can be frustrating, I think, is that they're going to let you have all three at the same time. You know, this movie, if we take it at face value, it is about a, a, a woman who is kind of jumping from, from world to world, different variants and different uh, segments of of one reality, but she's experiencing it in different ways kind of over and over again as she goes through the mixtape. The thing I wanted to mention about the mixtape, now I think that that thing you're describing there where you get the tapes and you're, what am I going to hear next? That frenetic energy of that, like you say, it's only captured in the way this movie structurally plays. It's not captured her playing the tapes. You hear the music, but it's more like you said, there's a mystery. What's going to happen next? She's listening to it to advance and get to the next level. I did end up because I ran into a period of time where I was like, okay, I have to find some time to watch this movie. My someone sit down and watch something with me. I talked to you and you had kind of given me a heads up on, hey, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of violence. There's not a lot of language. There are these couple of sensual elements, and you kind of pinpointed and helped me figure out where they were. And in that, particularly now when we have the streaming, you can just kind of look at the the whole player at the bottom and see, okay, I see this coming up. It's very easy. It's better than back in the day with my dad trying to fast forward stuff in BHS. And all, I, <laughs> all I ended up seeing was everything that he didn't want me to see and fast forward. And, and you hear that squealing sound? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Exactly. So I saw some white lines, but I still saw everything. It was just speeded up. I was like, well, people can do that. And, uh, but, but here it's so much. So I, and I was at the point, it's like, okay, let me, and I previewed some of it and I was like, okay, I, I think at this point, I can I can get and I was able to do that without him being aware that any of those scenes took place, but and and once you get out of that early probably the first twenty minutes or so none of that stuff really happens again. You have a couple shots of a person from a distance that it's implied that they might be um, that that you're seeing their bare back or, or something like that. But there's nothing uh, really excessive in there. So after that I was watching the movie and he was watching it with me and his perspective was interesting because he was getting into the mixtape like hunt right the scavenger hunt aspect of it the seven the seven portals that are supposed to be opened up as you are going through these mixtapes and he was into all that that stuff was washing over me because i was just trying to figure out where i was and what was going on right so he's 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 taking it as a video game and he wants to see well how do you get to this level and he's telling me he's like well dad well now we're now it's animated because this is the other portal and then there's a point when she goes into world and she picks up a one of those kind of the the, the clapper that you would add that the director hits you know action and they've got the word starfish on it and suddenly you realize and by some points out hey she's in the world where this movie is actually being made and let's not forget that this movie has a based on a true story tag at the very start of the film. And I sat and thought, what, outside of a gag, I've seen the trailer for this movie, outside of a gag, what is the purpose of putting that line in there? And I think that you would agree with me that this director is so, like, these, some of these things seem like happenstance, but there's such a control. When you have a movie with a low budget, to be able to get some of those beautiful monster scenes, to get that animated sequence, this movie had to be thought out down to the very detail. So the simple fact that it even feels erratic is the result of a lot of people trying to painstakingly make it feel that way. So I would assume that based on a true story has to mean something. And what I took of that is saying that 
this is an emotional journey and that this to the best the best way that this director could put on film this is the emotionally true story of what it's like to be caught up in grief to the point that you get disconnected from the life that's around you that's the way i took it it could be but the thing is bill they do leave open the option that it could be an alien invasion and you could still take it that way it could, could be like you said alien invasion is a concrete thing actually even mental illness that she sees these creatures because she's mentally ill is a concrete thing a not so concrete thing is the idea that this is about the healing power of the mixtape and i had i had always received mixtapes the way you did where you say someone sends you say hey, here's 10 songs i want to hear about it wasn't until you know i get to college and a lot of my friends i had a lot of friends that were were um were women and they and then at one point something happened uh, an experience in my life that was you know it was one of those things that you're not going to get over this immediately or right away and it's a big thing that's happened to you and a friend of mine a good friend of mine says here take this and listen to it and i'm like okay and then i was i was listening to that particular mixed tape i became aware that this was different than what i'm used to this wasn't 10 songs i really love and i need you to hear this was a roadmap that someone had made for me based on what they thought I needed to hear in the moment, if that makes sense. This was an emotional map to help me get through a specific thing. And I had never even experienced anything like that before. I was like, wait, what? Like, this is like, this is like someone, someone thinks I need self-help. <laughs> you know, I'm sitting here with this. I'm like, this is like a roadmap. And I think that is kind of what this movie is trying to use, the mixtape element, the idea that it's this emotional way to her to navigate is she's solving these portals, or she's opening these doors and closing them. What she's really trying to get through is what at the end when she puts the tapes together and she sees forgive and forget. And the little monsters that come and they attack her, they're like those fleeting bouts of pain that seem to come up every time she's confronted with the reality that she's in now. This one without this person in her life, whether that's the boyfriend or that's the lost friend, or it's both of them. And those leave her bloodied. And then at other times she looks up and sees this giant bioluminescent worm or whatever that's making its way across the, the landscape. Those are those looming, ongoing melancholy and pain that, hey, this isn't going to be over anytime soon. I have to endure this one. But meanwhile, these little guys are coming up and taking chunks out of me. And the tape is like, at the end, like my, my, my son was like, did she just die? Was that it? Is that what happened to her? And did the world end? You know, is salvation are salvation and and extinction closely linked when you're in a scenario like this? I don't know. And now it to, to it gets to a certain point where I think you can only speculate, and that's kind of what I got from the movie. So that's that's my take on it. That the mixtape thing is about a person take doing everything they can to come out on the other side of grief and deal with their demons. I'm going to say, while we're in spoiler territory, I'm going to say to anybody out here that thinks the way I do, there's no bloody way that you're going to get forgive and forget these little letters on each mixtape at the end. Like, Give me a bloody break. There's no way you're going to figure that out. Um, that's, that's another clue to me that was like, this is why this is metaphorical, because you're absolutely <laughs> right. You're like, wait, what? If you want to tell like, me something, you just write it on a paper. You're gone. If I need to save the world, you better tell me. There's no way when you see these mixtapes for 30 seconds before she sticks it in the cassette deck that you're going to piece seven of them together. To, oh, <laughs> I, I threw my hands in the air. I was like, give me a break. 
Um, yeah. and, but it's funny when you said you, you got this cassette tape of that a friend had given you to kind of guide you through a certain events that have happened in your life. That reminds me of my first year university roommate at Carleton University in Ottawa, Canada, 1993. He used to have these cassette tapes. When you have girls in the room, he had one make out tape one, make out <laughs> tape two. <laughs> so it would be like slow. So that at that point in time, it would have been like, Whitney Houston, and then evolving into slow jam Van Halen. Going into, you know. <laughs> that is, I used to laugh. You know, one of the creepiest, <laughs> the creepiest things ever. When I started, I was in, I was in um, college too. I started dating my uh, now my wife. But when I started um, dating my wife, uh, my now wife. She she had given she would give me like mixtapes and it was kind of like oh these are songs that mean a lot to me and do they mean a lot to you but I had a friend who came over one time and he just left on the top of like my dresser or something and and he had been over and I found it and it was a CD that said Nate's secret weapon on it and on that CD Bill are a lot of the same songs Barry White and all this kind of different stuff and I'm thinking this is deeply creepy that you made this for me I, I had never heard so many Leonard I had never heard so many Leonard Cohen songs in a row until I heard these <laughs> right it's just a loop of hallelujah <laughs> it's closing what? time oh shit I don't want to hear that <laughs> so yeah so those are my those are my thoughts I think but I you know I a movie that this reminds me of, and not that it's exactly like it, but I would say that there's a lot of, in this movie. There's a lot of Darren Aronofsky, I think, in this in this sort of movie. It reminds me a lot of The Fountain, which is probably my favorite Darren Aronofsky movie. Well, I don't well, know. The, the movie that I got a little bit of, I don't know if you got any of that, is a bit of a Twelve Monkeys vibe. A little bit. I think the thing with Twelve Monkeys, yeah, and, and particularly La Jetée, the film that that movie is inspired by. 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam's telling a very, he's got a concrete plot, right? But yeah. you're right, a lot of the surrealism and a lot of the tone, um, because they talk a lot about mental divergence in that movie. That's an actual plot point in 12 Monkeys, which is also a great movie. And you basically stumbled into my favorite kind of movie, which is the weird, trippy, hallucinogenic. And I guess at this point now, you know, we can point out that the uh, Land of the Creeps, a podcast that you, uh, you co-host, Bill, on a regular basis. Uh, I'm going to be on there with you guys talking about hallucinogenic and trippy horror movies. And I think this movie would fit well into that. Oh, into that. This, this would fit right in there. But I think if you like these kinds of things, if, you, if, you, if you're that guy that was in university and watched, uh, watched Pink Floyd's The Wall <laughs> ten times in a row, Starfish <laughs> is a movie for you. I think you would probably agree with well, that. Well, just to give a quick plug to another movie, if there's anybody listening that likes this kind of film, one that I like a little bit more is Vivarium with I Jesse Eisenberg and, and Imogene Poots. It's a good one out there. So check that one out if you're looking around. I'll have, I'll have to catch up with that and, and report back. Um, another movie that's fun for the, tri the trippy crowd, we could talk about a different point, is, and I know you've seen too, The Beach House. Very different oh, yeah. kind of movie. But that's a lot of fun, too. Um, I, I just like it when people take chances with things. You know, that's what I appreciate in a movie. And, and that's a film that literally involves edibles. <laughs> right. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, wait, look at it. But, you know, and I think years as a film critic going to these screenings and watching the same basic movie presented to me over and over and over again has made me appreciate movies like like this one like I, 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 I will say i don't regret watching it i like these kind of movies i didn't take as much to this one as you did but that won't deter me from getting another mind-bending wtf type of film because 
You know, for everyone you do you don't like, there might be two or three that you do like, and it's worth taking that adventure. Jump into the deep end and just go. Yeah, and honestly, I would rather watch two or three of these movies that didn't hit for me than watch a Terror Within that doesn't even seem to be trying. So I'll take I'll take this over ten she monsters. It's all all at the same time. And I'd love to hear what everyone thinks about it. Um, any of the movies that we mentioned here, I do think this is the one that's most likely to be um, divisive or to have people come up with different interpretations, different feelings on it. And again, like to me, a movie that was similar was was The Fountain from 2006. I mean, maybe to Mother. I know Mother was another divisive movie that people either seemed to really like latch onto or they didn't like it at all. I mean, um, to, to, to get into the horror genre, it's kind of like hereditary. Either you loved hereditary or you didn't at all. It's That's kind true. of in that that kind of thing. Not not anywhere near a similar movie, but yeah. But I I, I take your point. And I like there's a movie out right now called Relic that just came out uh, with um, with Emily Mortimer, and that is probably much closer to this one where there's the the down the line reading of it requires a metaphor, I think, in order to be able to process it. And as a as a supernatural exercise or science fiction exercise it's less satisfying because it purposely doesn't give us those those answers so next bill you had watched early in the week i saw you were watching a documentary posted on netflix and it made me think about the discussion we were having when we talked about dr mordred and this world of the 90s where people wanted to make these big franchise movies but they ended up going to little cd studios that didn't have a lot of money and they were just trying to push something through so do you want to talk about doomed the documentary that you watched yeah well i was up one night not really late it was about 10 10 30 and i was looking for something to watch i didn't want to have to think too hard but i wanted something that was entertaining and i was on youtube and they always have these videos of people reviewing other movies and one had mentioned doomed and it looked interesting enough, and it was on uh, Prime, Netflix, I believe. And it's, I mean, if you have Netflix, it doesn't cost you anything. And I thought, okay, I'll put it on. It's called Doomed, the Untold Story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four from 2015. And generally, superhero f- films are not my kind of thing, but this is a documentary about the making of a film. And what ended up happening back in the day was there was a film company that had the rights to the Fantastic Four, that Marvel had given them the rights, but they had to get a movie made within a certain time frame or they would lose the rights to the film. They wanted it to be done on the cheap and they wanted it basically to be a slam bam, thank you ma'am, get the film in and out. So they contacted around and there's uh, funny because they talked to different people that they contacted and they had contacted Troma, which is known for low budgeted high spirited type low films and, budget <laughs> and even lloyd kaufman said i can't help you with this but they contacted roger corman and corman basically said if you give me the money for x we can get it done in time frame y and they basically shot him the million dollars to get a Fantastic Four film done. Now, a million dollars seems pretty low, it is. Now, this was 1992, and still, that might be the equivalent of, I don't know, $3 million. But to do a film of that type, with that kind of outlay that's needed and required, that's like an impossible task. But Roger Corman, being the gentleman that he is, said he would do it. And now, the question that you get into in this film was... Did Roger Corman make this film knowing 
that this film would be pulled or did was he duped as well or did he kind of halfway through the film realize that this is going to be happening so i'm going to take my money and run because what ended up happening is they gather actors together they go through and they cast it and they begin filming and it's obvious the budget is low they're not doing the promotions that are appropriate they didn't get any high level actors but they did spend some money on certain things, like some of the costumes for The Thing and Doctor Doom weren't actually half bad. They were pretty good. But the outfits of the Fantastic Four were made by somebody's seamstress in the back of their house. Like, they're not great. And so it goes through, yeah, because they said some of it you could see where the number four is was just below the belt. Some of it was above the belt. You could see the stitch marks. Like, some of these are if you get a hold of it. And this movie of... Fantastic Four is available right now and actually a surprisingly decent quality on YouTube. But this film goes through all the actors, the producer, uh, not the, well, they do talk to the producer, Roger Corman, as well, but he's pretty vague. He doesn't give a lot of answers. They talk to the director. Like the cat that ate the canary. <laughs> he just smiles. It's like, well, it seems like some people had other motives and we only had a certain time frame. I mean, give us a little more than that. Come on, Roger. But they talked to all the actors. They talked to the director. They talked to the people that worked in makeup and on the equipment. And they talked to journalists that covered it. This film went through San Diego Comic-Con in 1993. They had set up at the Mall of America in Minneapolis where they were going to premiere the thing. Uh, they went to some of the smaller comic conventions. And it's the heartbreak of what happened to the film after all these people went through the effort of getting it done and the director went through to get a copy of this made and it's a really you'd think that it would be a sorrowful type film but it's surprisingly upbeat at certain times there's some great in-depth very frank discussions from the actors and you get the impression that this was a labor of true love the only actor in it that i knew of was an actor called Jay Underwood, who, if you've seen Uncle Buck, played the boyfriend of the daughter, Bug. And that's the only one of them. Robert Culp's son, Joseph Culp, is in it. And there's one other actor here, Alex Hyde-White, who, in retrospect, you might know from a few small things. But there's no big names in this. The, the, the biggest, biggest name person that you're going to recognize is George Gaines. For who played Commandant Lassard in the Police Academy movies. He has a very small, small role in there. Small role at the beginning, and Roger Corman himself, because he was... That's, uh, the that's true. Corman always finds his way through. Yeah. But, but it, it, And it goes through this where they went to make this film was a condemned building. It was <laughs> poorly lit. They had a cat that was there to get rid of the rodents. It was done on the, like, they thought, you know, if you're used to MGM Studios or Universal uh, Shooting Grounds, this was a, a commercial warehouse right beside what could be a meatpacking plant. Like, this thing was out in the middle of nowhere. And this is a fascinating film to watch. Again, sci-fi or uh, superhero movies are not my go-to, but I really dug this film. It's a good documentary. It's only an hour and change, I think. An hour, what is it here? Yeah, it's not long. An hour 25. It's not too long. And it's very interesting to see what's happened to the people since then. Uh, the story that unfolds of what happened to the original holders of the rights to the film 
and how Marvel went from being kind of on the low end as we talked about those Captain Americas and those Punisher films to what they've later become. So I don't know about you, Nathan, but I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, and just to clarify, when Bill says that the movie is very fascinating to watch, he means Doomed, the documentary. Not the, yes, the documentary, not the actual. Yeah. Man, as a kid, I loved, loved, loved the Fantastic Four in comic book form. And they were probably, honestly, and I talked to a lot of people that this is the case, even more so maybe than Spider-Man, some of the other Marvel characters, Fantastic Four was a title I absolutely loved. And one of the reasons was I... Each of those characters was very distinct and interesting, but there, there was also a little bit of a lighter a frivolity to that series and a sense of all these guys working together. And you got these, all of these interesting characters uh, with the Human Torch and, the, and, and Ben Grimm and the thing and, and Reed Richards and Sue Richards and all the way they work together. And I think that that kind of element and Doctor Doom, you know, the, the way they interact is what made that comic title so fun. And people have tried for years to capture this. And it's so funny to think that, yeah, you know, you know, these people who kind of they feel like they missed the boat but hey you know they shouldn't feel too bad because what 2015 2015 josh trank gets a, ch a chance to try and make the fantastic four and completely torpedoes his career doing it then makes a movie with the likes of miles teller and uh and michael b jordan in and and tony kevill in the in the cast and that movie was so bad that at a critic screening of it, there was 20 minutes left and I, I had to go and I just got up and walked out and left. And it was, it's, it's a terrible movie and it seems to keep happening. And part, part of the reason is the fantastic four keeps ending up being in a situation where people have the rights and there's a conflict and there's no, there have been over the years, there have been people who have written really passionate screenplays for these movies. But every time a Fantastic Four movie gets made, it never ends up in the hands of the person who's really passionate about it. The two movies that were made in the mid-2000s, like 2005 and 2007, the, the people who made those movies made them almost as a joke. You know, they almost made them uh, where they're almost at the level of a spoof. I don't know if you've seen those movies, but they're very light. They're very goofy. They're not terrible. Uh, there's good stuff in them. I mean, I have to believe that one of the reasons Chris Evans becomes... Uh, Captain America is because somebody saw the performance he gave as a human torch in those movies. But this movie is fascinating for the very reason you said. You watch these people who really felt they were onto something, and yet Corman was Corman being disingenuous? I don't think so. But Corman has been around the block on these movies, right? Well, let's not forget that Corman himself has actually directed some decent pictures. He's directed movies that can be considered legitimately good, but he doesn't do that every time out. And I don't know that that's his goal every time out. Corman's a schlockmeister who had a company to run and was running a lot of these things through the grinder. And I think that, you know, these people probably weren't quite aware of this is the reality that we find ourselves in. And the interesting thing about the movie is you keep seeing these people confronted as they begin to realize what it is they're actually making. I think one of the sad parts, I think it's the character, the actor who plays Dr. Doom, uh, who I think that's Culp's son. He is standing there and he says, and then the first one of the days of filming and we're watching the scene where the the wedding has taken place and they're leaving in the honeymoon limousine. And I watched it pull away and I saw the stretchy hand effect and I thought, hmm, 
And if you watch the scene of the movie, it's a big bendy arm. It looks like a giant bendy straw <laughs> that someone has stuck through the roof of the limousine and is waving it back and forth. But I agree with you. I remember because because uh, I worked at a video store back in the in the 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 late uh, or the the mid '90s there and early '90s about the time this movie was coming out. I remember New Horizons, and they put out all kinds of schlock. And I remember renting one of their movies, and the trailer for this renting probably a couple of their movies, and the trailer for this being in front of it probably Carnosaur was one of the movies. And you would see this trailer for the Fantastic Four. And my dad and I were excited and thought, yeah, that didn't look very good, but it's a Fantastic Four movie. And they got the Doctor Doom costume right. They got the the, the Ben Grimm thing. You know. It was low budget, but we were excited, and it just—it never materialized. It never came out. That was probably for the best. But I always enjoy these movies that are sort of like the doomed. What happened to what happened to the movie that never was? You know, there's a great um, there's a great documentary about the making of the Island of Doctor Moreau, which was released, but it wasn't the version that Richard Stanley was making when he was fired from the movie. So these sorts of movies are always pretty interesting. This one was no exception. And the one thing I will say that's kind of odd is I started to watch, try to watch this with my kids to give them an idea of, you know, what goes into making movies and how sometimes movies don't work out. And this movie, for the most part, once in a while, someone will drop a curse word. But the where most of the language this movie comes in inexplicably are in movie clips from other movies, Tarantino movies or other Corman movies that have no business really even being in this movie, but they've padded it out just to show a movie clip. And those clips inevitably have like Samuel Jackson dropping the F-bomb or something like that. And you're like, why is this the case? So just be aware of that. The Fantastic Four movie was rated PG or would have been rated PG had it actually been uh, formally released. But this movie is probably closer to a PG-13, I would assume, because of some of that carelessness with the movie clips that, that happens. But yeah, I liked it. I liked it. The only thing I'd say that I hadn't said was, I'm not going to say how the version of the Fantastic Four that we can find on YouTube was leaked out, but watch till the end when he says, and you're like, holy cow, is that really how it got out? <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of fun stuff in this. The last thing I say, I liked that Lloyd Kaufman's actually in this movie, and and his reasoning. Lloyd Kaufman's a funny guy because he's totally off kilter. His movies are off kilter, but you when you hear him talk, he has a certain kind of sense that he makes. You know, he is a reasonable person, and his reasoning for why he didn't want to make the Fantastic Four was very interesting because he's basically like, yeah, we would just sully it up, and people didn't want to see the Fantastic Four. They want to see our weird characters. They want to see Sergeant Kabuki Man. They want to see the Toxic Avenger. The the, the trauma quadrant doesn't want to see the fantastic four or if they do they don't want to see lloyd kaufman making it and he says so we didn't want to alienate our fans but i also had a good friendship with stan lee i didn't want to i didn't want to alienate stan lee either so and that probably was a smart a smart move because you know kaufman get, gets his cameos in marvel movies now too and you look at james gunn where did he come from you know he does guardians of the galaxy now but he came from trauma so it it wasn't maybe as outlandish as it seemed at the time but uh yeah yeah it's a fun it's a fun documentary so, so what would you what would you give this as a rating this one i'd say about a 6.5 it's strong i think that uh there's a lot of it is from the perspective of like i think the thing that's missing is what you said i want to see a little bit of the people that weren't deeply mired into it at least to give some perspective what actually happened here we hear about what an awful financial deal it was and how bad everybody was kind of treated but there's a certain element i think corman silence says something about the idea that he thinks 
hey, this is how business goes sometimes. And I would have liked a little bit more of that behind the scenes, if that makes sense, from people that weren't these down on the ground, here are the actors, everyone's big breaks. Somebody somewhere knew that, knew what they were doing, you know, and I wanted to see a little bit more an expose on that. And then I do think that there's a carelessness to some of how the movie is put together, but it is a very interesting documentary. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it was slightly slanted in one direction, but I think that's partly because the other direction didn't want anything to do with the documentary. <laughs> so, I, I mean, for obvious reasons, what do they, you know, whatever. So I, I can give this a seven. I think for this type of documentary, for what the topic is and what it's trying to uncover is probably about as good as you're going to get. I mean, unless you're getting into deep nitty gritty Hollywood stuff, this is, this is pretty good. It's as uh, evening fair. If you're tired after work or you just are into this kind of comic uh, characters and you want to know something about the movie business, it's worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. So we're basically at the end of the show here and we went, we went a little bit longer than I expected, but I mean, I think we had, that's because I think we had some pretty, uh, we had some interesting things I think to say about, uh, Starfish was a movie that needed a little bit of examination, and I think we were, you know, we we got this review in too. So, yep. uh, do we want to do? Are we ready to do the VOD roulette? Let's choices? let's get some. Let's spin the wheel and see what we get. Yeah. The... Let's go down to MGM Grand and right. get our money. The, the wheel of fish. Uh, wheel of fish. Do you. Why don't you um, why don't you go first, Bill? Okay. Well, I was inspired by the fact that we just talked about and reviewed a documentary, and so I thought, why not kind of go that route with you this time? But I wanted one that I would want to watch because obviously that's not fair to give you nothing but junk. So on Tubi, I want you to write down. This is called "Calling All Earthlings." Calling from, all Earthlings. I haven't heard of this. From 2018. I literally just found it, but it sounded interesting. And it gets a relatively high mark on IMDb. Now, that could have been padded by the producers. I don't know. But here's what it says. A 1950s Howard Hughes employee confidant, George Van Tessel, Van Tassel, uses alleged alien guidance and Nikola Tesla's ideas to build a time machine, the integration. Is he deluded or could it actually work? And then there's a bit more to that. But I thought that first two lines, yeah, that's worth watching. And this is, is not a mockumentary. This is nope. a documentary. This is a legit documentary. Wow. And it, and it apparently involves the FBI. It says, the unusual story is told by historians, astronomers, and current residents of the Joshua Tree, including the stewards oh. of the Integron, the Carl sisters, and a galaxy of believers and skeptics alike. I cannot wait for this. I think that I, I'm, I'm not going to say anything until I watch it. I have not seen this, but I think it's going to touch on some things that I'm aware of that, wow, that, that'll be quite an episode to talk about. I <laughs> did not pick a documentary for you, but I that's still have right. something that's kind of fun. So okay. calling all earthlings. And where can this be found? This is on so Tubi. Wants to watch it? Yep. Tubi? Okay. This is on Tubi. Just type in calling all earthlings and there's nothing else that's like it. Okay. So I'm, and you haven't watched it yet. You nope. haven't seen it yourself yet. Okay. Nope. So I I went kind of com something completely different. We've covered a lot of science fiction on the show. We've covered a lot of horror on the show. We haven't covered as much fantasy. I don't know if She-Monster actually kind of qualifies as fantasy. So I was like, well, can I find something that sort of bridges in the middle of all of these things? So I 
and, and it's a foreign film this time. Have you seen the movie A Chinese Ghost Story? I have not. Excellent. There there have been three of them over the years. This one is directed by Chu Hark. It was done in the late 80s. It's on Amazon Prime right now to watch. It is a chop kind of, uh, you know, uh, wuxia flying through the air, martial arts extravaganza. However, it is also deals with a lot of uh, folklore, Chinese folklore, with the whole... Uh, demons and, and monsters and vampires and there's a lot of of creatures and a lot of zaniness that happens in this movie that you sit there and you think man i wonder how much of this sam raimi saw when he was making his movies so so this so this is called a chinese ghost story a chinese ghost story it can be found on amazon prime there are two sequels there i've seen the sequels it's been quite a while i've seen them i've seen these movies but it's been a very long time since i it, saw them and what year is the original one? The original, I just had it up here. I believe the original is 1987. And so if you want, if anyone who's listening to this and hasn't seen this movie, reason aware of it, and I apologize. A Chinese Ghost Story is not directed by, uh, the original is not directed by Chu Hark. He worked on the film, but it's directed by Su Tung Ching, who did, who did the original movie. Chu Hark was involved in directing, I think, the third movie, but he's a producer on it. And... Uh, People who who have come across his name before, he did a lot of these types of movies uh, within the 80s and in the 90s. And this is, I think, it's a lot of fun. If you want an idea of what this would be like, uh, think Big Trouble in Little China. You know, the kind of movie that John Carpenter was trying to transport from Asia here. That's what this movie really is, a Chinese cool. story. I really look it. Now, I'm assuming this is subtitled, correct? It should be. Now, I say it should be because this will not be the first time. I haven't turned this one on to check. It's not – I'm turning it on right now while we're – let me make sure the audio is turned down. While we're sitting here talking, I'll turn it on uh, as we talk about our other movie that we're, we're going to pick, our, our mutual movie. But the uh, it wouldn't be the first time I've turned on a movie on Amazon Prime, and it didn't actually have subtitles. So um, – but let's, let's check it out. Say, I, I can deal with badly dubbed. I can't deal with Mandarin. <laughs> no, no, right? Yeah, I'm in the same way. I can't, I can't deal. Back in the day, trying to find these movies, that now it's easy to get on and see all these things. But I remember when you'd have to basically order them, either uh, you know, foreign copies of them or bootlegs of them, or you would have to go to something like a, a convention or a film festival and see these movies. And that's kind of how I remember seeing this one in particular. While we're waiting on that, let's go ahead and talk about what our group movie or. or Let's talk about the move, the third movie we'll review, which will be kind of like our feature review. And for this one, you and I kind of settled upon doing a movie. Uh, I think we've had so far, we've had reasonable success. You know, I think with picking the sci-fi movies. So a movie that I had I had seen, I remember actually seeing trailers for this movie, and I don't know if it was last year. Uh, it was probably sometime last year. Uh, it's called Fast Color, and it was Fast from 2019. Color. And it's a it's directed by Julia Hart. It stars Guga Mabatharaw and David Strathern is also in the movie. The basic IMDb premise says, hunted by mysterious forces and a local sheriff, a young woman with supernatural abilities flees back to her family and unearths the depths of the power within her. And I think this actually looks pretty interesting. It's got a really good trailer. I do like these sorts of movies that end up being kind of the, uh, you know, road trip 
with a science fiction sort of setting. Uh, one of my favorite Carpenter movies is actually uh, Starman. I don't know if you've ever seen Starman. And the Road Trip movie was done a couple years ago in a movie called Midnight Special with Michael Shannon. And I really like that kind of idea where you, you've got the supernatural and you have the elements of people on sort of a journey, whether they're fleeing or trying to get a certain place. So I think Fast uh, fast Color looks pretty interesting. It and I, I, I just have to be able to find it. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. For, oh, it's uh, on Prime right now. Okay. Yeah, as is right. uh, as is Chinese Ghost Story. Okay. And I think I think that's going to end up with a really interesting. I think that's going to give us a very interesting next episode because I think uh, based on the movie you just told me about, and I know definitely with Chinese Ghost Story, and uh, uh, presumably with this movie too, I think we're going to have a lot to talk about uh, when we. It, it, when this finally happens. It, it, it's a bit of a wide swath. <laughs> and I can confirm that there are good subtitles on this movie. All right. Because I just saw, yeah. Um, it's, yeah, looks like it's working exactly the way it's supposed to be. So, Perfect. So I think, uh, I think we are in luck. And just say that our next episode we have coming up, we're going to have an episode, uh, we mentioned the episode with Greg Bench about the wilderness horror and there's going to be a couple other things in between so there might be two episodes before we come back and do another uh do the episode that we're working on here but i would say probably about two weeks it'll be about two weeks before we have the episode so you guys have plenty of time to check out the movies i will put them up on facebook and otherwise bill is there anything do you want anything you want to plug uh, that we haven't already before you go no, I'd say if you want to get a hold of me, listen to Land of the Creeps with the one and only Greg Amortis and Dr. Shock Dave Becker, two wonderful co-hosts who have been kind enough to let me tag along to their show. And I'm on with Jay Wall and Jay Wall versus Horror, various projects, and I'm with uh, Father and Son Watch Horror and on this podcast and if anybody else has a podcast that's remotely interesting i will come on <laughs> sounds good and you can find us here at phantom galaxy you can have find us at twitter it's at phantom that's with an f f-a-n-t-o-m galaxy and then at facebook you can find us on a facebook page at phantom galaxy and you can also find us over at uh apple Podcasts. please go over to apple podcasts and if you hear the show and you enjoy the show please leave us a review as we expand we'll be able to get uh, more guests on and we're looking to do some interviews looking to do some book reviews and things like that and by expanding the base that can hear the podcast and who knows about the podcast that opens up more opportunities there as well so please do that if you if you think to and then otherwise uh that's it so that will that will conclude our show bill thanks again for coming on and i will talk to you soon uh, absolutely and i hope the listeners do if they don't like hearing me let nathan know and i will go away you can't go regardless if someone likes you or not you have to stay <laughs> <laughs> i'm um, an indentured servant here that's right take care and have a great night if you've been enjoying the music here on Phantom Galaxy, the opening theme and the closing theme are both brought to you by synth-pop artist Aries Beats. He's done a lot of really cool stuff in the world of synth-pop, a lot of very interesting genre-based retro themes. You can find more of his work over at ariesbeats.bandcamp.com. And until next time, we are the Phantom Galaxy. Mm-hmm.